Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com and ADC Media, producers of fine Catholic programming like Light of the East, and supplier of imaging, underwriting announcements, and promos for Catholic podcasts and radio stations. Inquire at adcmedia128 at outlook.com. This episode of Light of the East was originally scheduled to air on Sunday, September 22nd. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyo, your host. This week in the Eastern Catholic Churches... On the liturgical calendar, in fact, tomorrow, which will be Monday, September 23rd, we celebrate the conception of John the Baptist. We also celebrate, later in the week, the passing of John the, the Apostle, the Evangelist. Now, what's interesting about the first feast day, the conception of, of John the Baptist, is that it is only with St. John the Baptist and the Blessed Mother that we celebrate the conception and birth of a saint. Think about that. How many feast days of saints you know celebrate their birth or their conception? None. We always celebrate either an event of their life, their life itself, or their passing, their death, or also the translation of their relics. At least that's a popular one in the Eastern churches. So the conception of St. John the Baptist is very interesting. It's very telling, very informative. It shows you how special that conception and birth was, as it is for the Blessed Mother. Just a little interesting side note about the upcoming week liturgically in the Eastern churches. It's always exciting, even though we're in so-called ordinary time, although the new liturgical calendar has already begun on September 1st. We're basically still in a, basically what we might call ordinary time, but it's never really ordinary as I just showed you right now. (laughs) There's always something interesting to learn about our faith. Recently, there's been a lot of apprehension in, especially among the Latin Rite Catholics, about the upcoming synod in October. It's called the Amazon Synod. The Pope is calling this synod to address the issues of the pan-Latino or pan-Amazon as they sometimes call it, concerns. In other words, the area in South America 
where you have a number of countries in that continent of South America, many of them in areas such as jungle or tropical regions, who cannot be reached very well or do not have enough priests. So they cannot be reached very well by the church, you know, for the life of the church and the sacraments and so on. And it's a concern by the Pope. He, of course, is from South America. So he would have a certain extra sensitivity to that, as we might well imagine. But there's a lot of a lot of apprehension, especially among Latin Rite Catholics, because the working documents, and again, it's just the working documents, and we mentioned them here before on Light of the East. The working documents seem to suggest that there's going to be a consideration or maybe even a push to resolve the situation of the lack of priests in the Amazon region by instituting or rediscovering or reintroducing married priests into the Latin Rite. Now, the Latin Rite did have married priests for the first thousand years. It wasn't as much of an official practice as it was in the East, but they did have it. And we look at St. Peter, we look at the apostles who were married. So it did exist in the church East and West. However, those who are opposed to having married priests in the Latin Rite, one of their arguments is that there is a theory, and with a certain degree of good scholarship behind it, that from the time of the apostles, like, for instance, when the apostles were called by Christ and they were ordained as priests or even later as bishops, and they in turn ordained priests and bishops, that from that time, from the time of their ordinations, even the apostles were asked or required to be continent, in other words, to be celibate. And their wives, of course, had to agree with that. Now, there is actually a dispute among scholars about the validity of that, And the dispute among scholars is a very interesting study because there's very interesting research on both sides of that issue. One article I would recommend to all of you is by a Byzantine Catholic. His name is Dr. and is a deacon, Anthony Dragani, Ph.D., Dr. Deacon Anthony Dragani. He wrote an article in a publication called From East to West, and the article was called Is Mandatory Clerical Celibacy an Apostolic Tradition? I went again, I repeat that. Is mandatory clerical celibacy an apostolic tradition? Again, it's from the magazine From East to West, and it's by Anthony Dragani. You can look that up and find it very easily on the internet. Dr. Dragani addresses this issue of whether there was really a rule of continence for ordained ministers from the time of the apostles. And he basically casts doubt on that as a hard and fixed fact. And he also points to a lot of other types of research and insights on this whole issue. But the issue is one that really is about understanding priesthood and celibacy and monasticism and marriage, actually. And we're going to try to do so from the perspective of the Eastern churches, because I think the Eastern churches have a lot to offer, a lot of insights to offer, especially to our Latinite brethren who are apprehensive about the idea that there may once again be married priests in the Latin Rite. I wrote an article about this called Married Priesthood and Celibacy in Light of the Upcoming Amazon Synod. And in that article, I address some of the issues that I'll share with you today. But I caution you, because my article was misread by many, as you might expect. It might even be the fact that you might mishear what I'm saying on this program today. So I'm going to, right up front, make it very clear. My 
article and what I'm saying to you today in this program has nothing to do with an argument for or against married clergy, especially for the Latin rite. That is not my purpose at all. I can say that again. My thoughts here, as in my article, are not an article about for or against married priesthood, and especially they are not in any way trying to suggest or tell the Latin Rite what to do on that issue. My purpose here is simply to help give clarity to the discernment on that issue, because that's very important. It's a very, very big issue, and one that has a lot of people very, very apprehensive, especially in the Latin Rite Church. For those of the so-called progressive agenda, they're kind of rubbing their hands and licking their chops because they think, oh, good, here comes a development that they've been waiting for for a long time to have married priests in the Latin Rite. And that's very unfortunate, and I would say to the so-called progressives, although I don't like to call names and label people, but you understand what I mean. For the sake of our discussion, I'll use that term, progressives or liberals or whatever, I caution them that not to look to the East, to our tradition, basically keep your hands off our Eastern traditions in terms of married clergy, if you're going to try to make that part of some kind of progressive agenda, along with things like the ordination of women and so on. It has nothing to do with that. My whole point here, and what is very important, and I'm going to stress here very emphatically, is we have to have honest scholarship, clear discernment on this issue for the sake of both churches, East and West, for the sake of humanity, for the sake of the priesthood, the church, the world, marriage. That's right. This is a very important issue. Secondly, the Latin Rite Church, just as with the Eastern churches, whether Orthodox or Catholic, we all have the right and the jurisdiction to decide for ourselves, for our respective churches, the best discipline for its clergy in this area. There's some things we don't have a choice about, but there are certain things that we can have a choice about. In the Latin Rite Church, for over a thousand years, they have now had a mandatory celibacy for their priests. Now, that's not something to take lightly. That's not, not something to scoff at. That's something to really look at and say to ourselves, hmm, if it's been around that long and it has been effective Yes, not not perfect, of course, not perfect. We can point a lot of scandals, etc., etc. But by and large, it has been very effective for the Latin Rite, and it has been an effective and powerful witness to the world. So the fact that the Latin Rite does not have a married clergy needs to be taken very, very seriously, and it is not to be challenged in any superficial way. So that's my point here. I'm actually trying to assist my Latin Rite brethren, if in fact they need my assistance or want it, but I'm offering it anyway because the Eastern churches do have a lot to say on this issue, a lot that they can bring to the clarity of discernment. And I can't stress that enough. We must have clarity of discernment. So that's the first thing. Actually, the first two things. I'm not here to advocate for the the Latin rite, nor am I here to talk about married priest versus celibate priest. I'm here to try to bring clarity to the discussion of that very important issue, which is becoming more of an issue now in light of the upcoming Amazon Synod. And as I mentioned, each church also has the right and jurisdiction to decide for itself. 
the Latin rite cannot tell the Eastern rites to have Mary Clinton or not have them, and vice versa. We can advise and offer our insights to one another so that we can help one another come to authentic discernments, but we cannot tell or legislate for one another. So I hope that's very clear, and I want to spend a lot of time, no, I spent a lot of time on that, but it's very important that that is clear. Now, when it comes to this issue of Mary clergy or not Mary clergy, it's really what we have to understand is that the real issue of marriage or celibacy is really an issue between marriage or monasticism, not so much between priesthood and marriage. See, in the West, because they've had a mandatory celibacy for priests for so long, there's a tendency to what I call ontologize celibacy. In other words, to make it absolutely synonymous with the priesthood. And that is not really theologically true. What is theologically true is what the celibate priesthood is trying to point to or trying to make present. And that is the eschatological dimension of our faith. And when I return, I'm going to elaborate on that because it's I know it's maybe a bit of a brain twister but it's a very important point for which the eastern churches have some great insights to offer I'm Father Thomas Leia on Light of the East Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion and to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's TaborLife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. This is Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and you are listening to Light of the East. back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. And we're addressing this issue of, of which many, especially Latin Rite Catholics, are apprehensive about, this issue of married priests versus celibate priests. And this is an issue that people are apprehensive about in the Latin Rite because there's a certain fear or apprehension that the Pope may introduce married clergy into the Latin Rite at the upcoming Amazon Synod in October. Before we get any further, I also want to clarify something else. See, a lot of things have to be clarified as we move through this issue. Priests do not marry. So sometimes it's said, oh, in the Eastern churches, your priests can get married. No, they can't get married. They can be married. They have to already be married before they are ordained a priest. So that's the case in the church, East and West, from the very beginning, anywhere there, where there was a married priesthood in history, it was always, always where the man had to be married first, then he became a priest. So priests do not marry. Priests can be married, but they have to be married before they are ordained. Okay, go back to this idea of monasticism versus marriage. 
celibacy, to be correct, spiritually, theologically, celibacy is actually or can be ontologized or equated with monasticism, the word mono, singular. The monastic, precisely because he's monastic, he is celibate and vice versa. Celibacy is intrinsic to monasticism. That's the whole point, where you give up sacramental marriage so as to witness to the eschaton. That's the key point I mentioned earlier before the break. The church needs to and wants to and must witness to the eschatological destiny of the human person. In other words, where we're going to end up. And where we're going to end up is, as the scripture says, especially the book of Revelations, the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. That's an analogy, an allegory for heaven, like a great wedding. The union, the ultimate, the intimate union of love between Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. So our ultimate destiny is to be, if you want to use that word in a sense, married, espoused, mystically, got to think mystically now, to Christ. So what matters first and foremost, even for married couples on earth, is Christ. Christ must come first. God must come first. How often we send it to married couples? That's the secret to the happiness in their marriage. When they don't have that, they're guaranteed to run into problems in their marriage. So we keep saying that. You must put God first individually and as a couple. So the monastic, precisely because they are not married, by their very life and witness are pointing loudly to the fact that Christ is our first, foremost spouse, that everything must be subordinate to God, even marriage itself. Or another way of saying a marriage must be centered in God first and foremost. So the married person is married on earth sacramentally, and they anticipate through their marriage the eschaton. In other words, how we'll be married to Christ the bridegroom, mystically, in heaven. But the monastic, precisely because they are not married, they renounce marriage, not because it's bad, they renounce it to make already present on earth the eschaton. In other words, how we will be in heaven, where we are not exclusively married to one person, but collectively we are married to the one bridegroom, Christ, in heaven. So the element, the discipline of celibacy, is in fact intrinsic. It can be ontologized in monasticism, but not in the priesthood itself. However, celibacy, and if it's required of priests as it is in the Latin rite, is one very effective, powerful way to witness to the eschaton. A monk does it by the fact that they are mono, monastic, celibate, but a priest can witness to it by being celibate as well. But the eschaton, nonetheless, the eschatological dimension is nonetheless inherent in the priesthood. Let's face it, the priest represents both the bride of the church on earth, but also and more so the bridegroom Christ. So, yes, there is an eschatological dimension inherent with the priest. I mean, you talk about a priest, what's a priest all about? We know the priest is about God, it's about heaven. So there's automatically an eschatological dimension. It just becomes more palpable, more, more direct in the monastic. So marriage and priesthood are not to be opposed to each other. Rather, marriage and monasticism are. However, having said that, 
Now I'm going to maybe confuse you even more. <laughs> as St. John Paul II points out, articulates very well in his Theology of the Body, and as we say in the Eastern churches, celibacy and marriage may be opposed to each other in one sense. At the same time, though, they are two sides of the same coin. They subsist in each other. In other words, the monastic points to the fact that God is number one. Well, that should exist in marriages. As I said, that's one of the tickets to a happy marriage. So there has to be a monastic element in marriage. St. John Chrysostom even says that married couples must be good monks. The Russian Orthodox theologian, Paul Evdokimov, tells us that in the Russian tradition, the courtship, the time of engagement or courtship between a couple was seen as a kind of a novitiate. And when they got married, their first week of marriage was spent in a monastery. What? Yeah. Yes, a monastery. Because they were being prepared, as Evdokimov says, for their quote-unquote nuptial priesthood. Even though marriage and monasticism are on opposite poles in one sense, at the same time, they are bonded and subsist in each other. Two sides of the same coin, to love spousally. Conversely, the celibate has to live and see their celibacy as a way of being mystically married. So the monk doesn't give up being truly a father, a man, and therefore siring spiritual children through his witness of monasticism, nor does a female monk, in other words, a nun, she does not give up her maternal dimension, her femininity. In fact, many nuns wear wedding rings, actual wedding rings, and they're called sometimes mother. In the Eastern churches, when you've been a female monastic for so long, you're actually called mother. And conversely, if you've been a monastic for a certain amount of time in the East and you're a man, you're called father. Now, why would we do that if you're celibate? Well, it's because you are being a father or mother, a spouse, in a mystical way to the point where some nuns actually wear wedding rings. They are espoused to the bridegroom Christ, the priest, the monk espoused to the church. So the monastic must see and live. There's two things. They must see and live, must understand their celibacy in a spousal way. In other words, that they are married to God or the church, and they will, from that, have progeny. They will be fruitful. They will bring about spiritual children. And the monastic will find a great inspiration. He'll find that his or her celibacy is to be lived spousally by the example of the happily, sacramentally married couple who, at the same time, embrace a certain monasticism in their marriage. Conversely, the married couple sees in the monastic a reminder of the sacramental, the eschatological dimension of their marriage. Now, I hope I haven't confused you too much, but I'll go even further to confuse you more. The crowning comment or statement that could be said about a married couple is something like this. Gee, he would have been a great priest, or she would have made a great nun, even though the two of them are married. Why would that be the crowning statement? Because it shows that both of them are really living their faith first as individuals and as a married couple, and that is shining through. So we associate that with priesthood or monasticism. Conversely, the monastic, whether a male or female, someone should say of them, and this would be the crowning statement of their monasticism, their celibacy, is, gee, he would have been a great husband and father, or she would have been a great wife and mother. 
That shows that the monastic, male or female, is living out their celibacy, their monasticism, in a way that is very life-filled, very, very spousal. That's what makes sense of their celibacy. It's a mystical spousalhood, mystical fatherhood, mystical marriage, mystical motherhood. And that is something very real. Don't mistake the mystical for something kind of out there that normally people don't experience. We're all called to be a mystic because we were made in the image and likeness of God. And we were all baptized and infused with the Holy Spirit through chrismation. And that gets enlarged and animated through the reception of the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. So you all ought to see yourselves as mystics. And you all ought to be mystical. It's just that some might be more than others. But mysticism, the mystical, is not reserved just for a choice few, and we're normal people. They're kind of different and special over there. They might have special mystical experiences, but every baptized Christian is to be a mystic. There's a lot more we can say on this issue, maybe we'll pursue it at another time. But the important thing is, is to see this issue, the issue of married clergy versus a celibate clergy, in as accurate honest and holistic a way as possible. And this is what we have tried to do here, and we'll continue to try to do from the riches of the Eastern churches. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit byzantinecatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Radio is it's training for the troops. It's a interaural of the ear boot camp. The folks who listen, who grow in their faith, grow in charity, grow in all the virtues, they then go out and exert an influence far beyond just themselves. Catholic radio has an exponential effect for bringing people deeper into the faith. Dr. Ray Garendi thinks Catholic radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!